Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Tammy Willis grew up in Virginia in the 70s and 80s in a Christian fundamentalist church that she now knows was a cult in the ways in which it operated and the ways it abused and controlled its members. Her church, school, and family life was steeped in methods of control based on fear, abuse, dependency, coercion, obedience at all costs, guilt, and shame. She spent most of her early life in heavy indoctrination. Although she's been away from fundamentalism for 30 years, she's still coming to terms with the ways in which she was raised and how her life has been affected. Seeing what is happening in the United States political system and the rise of Christian nationalism has been eye-opening and triggering for her. In the last few years, it's becoming clear to her that governmental power and influence is being used to promote specific religious views and violate the rights of other people. There is a clear connection between the ways in which Christian religious groups use mind control and coercion, how members who have been conditioned to have blind faith are now being used in our political system, as she says. The constant onslaught of lies and gaslighting and the systemic invalidation of mainstream media are causing many people, according to Tammy, and I've seen it too, not to trust their own eyes and ears or to question the ways in which they know things about the world. These are the exact information control methods that people within fundamentalism and evangelicalism experience. She's speaking out because she wants people to understand the damaging cultic nature of religious groups that are all too often seen as benign in the United States. She believes we are in a cycle of manipulation and control in which politicians are using the ready willingness and belief of members of religious groups who have already been conditioned to be manipulated to further their own agendas. And this is what Tammy is doing now. Before the spring, she had started a business as a typing teacher for school-aged children, but has now pivoted to focus on education for her son and his peer group during COVID. She spent a lot of time volunteering and organizing, working to assist the immigrant and refugee students and families in her community. And she coaches an academic team at her family's local middle school. It was a pleasure to speak with her. Here's Tammy now. I am so happy to have Tammy Willis with us today, and I am looking forward to having you share your story and also this interesting link to the government. And I really liked in what you wrote to me about what you'd like to be able to cover, because I think it's really important when we get into how the powers that be shape people's thinking. And so I know right now a lot of people are really wondering about the information they're getting uh, and if it's trustworthy, if leadership is trustworthy and how you know. And so I, I like that you brought up government along with your childhood experiences because I think it, it adds to a certain kind of curiosity about whom to trust. And also that you're gonna be able to detect 
manipulation on small scales and on grand scales. So I think it's, it's raised your antenna, so to speak. So tell us a little bit about you and then we'll go from there. Okay. Uh, my name is Tammy Willis and I uh, grew up in, in sort of extreme version of Christian fundamentalism. Our group was I mean, sort of medium-sized for a, a Christian church in Virginia where I lived. There were probably about 70 families in the church, and there was a school that was also attached to the church. So, you know, everyone spent quite a lot of time together throughout the week. Either, you know, if you were a student, you're in school with your peers quite, you know, 30 hours a week. And then there's church on Sunday morning and church on Sunday evening and church on Wednesday evening and a sort of fellowship kind of going around and knocking on doors on Thursdays. And so there's just a lot of time spent in sort of indoctrination into the group and the group think that went along with that. So, mm -hmm. And I'm curious about the Thursday. So what was the fellowship with people going around knocking on doors? What was that about? So basically, you we would all get together for like a group dinner before we would get sort of into groups or go on a bus and just kind of they would pick a neighborhood and we would all get out and go and start knocking on people's doors and hopefully have a chance to kind of tell them about our group and, and what we were doing and, you know, try to get them to come to church. Okay, got it. And so how did it work? Did you get people to come to church? <laughs> Not usually, you know, it's it's pretty much what you would expect from having somebody show up on your doorstep and, and tell you about their religion. You know, you don't really get very many takers that way, though. And you know what? That's hard because I uh, there are people who are really good at doing sales and they like it and they know that they're going to be told no nine times out of 10 and or sometimes 10 times out of 10 and it doesn't bother them. But for other people who I've talked to whose part of their tradition was to go door to door. That was one of the hardest things for them, just dealing with that and feeling either embarrassed or feeling rejected or something. So how old were you when you needed to do that? Oh, gosh. Um, usually you start with the door knocking by the time you get out of elementary school. So probably like 12 years old. They would send girls out, you know, in groups of, you know, young teenagers by themselves knocking on doors. <laughs> Right. And in retrospect, you're, yeah, questioning that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just all sort of part and parcel with, with their whole philosophy, right? I mean, there was a lot of dysfunction within our group. I mean, people, it, it was just part of the institution, I guess. You know, there's so much manipulation happening in terms of the things that you're taught from a young age, as well as the things that you're told to believe and how, how you're told to think and how you're told to stop thinking. And so I think, you know, when you put that all together and you start thinking about the way that that affects the way that you treat children and other minorities or other groups that aren't able to make decisions for themselves, it's just... Yeah. Okay. So then I'm curious, what is the name of the group if you're comfortable sharing it? Um, okay, so it's, uh, the, they call themselves Independent Fundamental Baptists. And basically, the reason that they do that is because they don't want to be a part of any of the major 
religious organizations like the Southern Baptist Convention or something like that, where they would have to answer to someone else. So independent fundamental Baptist is, is what you end up with. Okay. And who is it run by? Um, our church was run by a man named Rod Bell, who is not the same as the Rod Bell, I think the same name that, that is out in the world today. He was, it's hard to for me to say that he was a cult leader because I was so young and I just, I don't think I even really had the framework to think about it that way. But looking back on it now and kind of knowing what I know, everything that happened there just fits with cult manipulation and coercive control and, and everything that you think about when you think of how behaviors are controlled and, you know, all of that. So can you give some examples of how your behavior was controlled? And then I want to go back to what you were talking about, about uh, learning how to think and learning um, how to stop thinking. That was fascinating to hear because I I come back to that phrase a lot in calling it different things, but that for a lot of people, that's what they notice and that's what's been hard for them to undo. Uh, Okay, so what were the systems in place to control First of all, people's behaviors. Um, well, for children, it was it was aggressive corporal punishment. It was pun- you know punitive punishment that usually involved physical physicality. In addition to that, it was just sort of teaching you to be afraid of everything. You know, not just being afraid of of, of the punishment that you might receive, but just you know, afraid for your literal life all the time because you're afraid of hell and you're afraid of dying and and going to hell, but you don't know if you're going to go to hell or heaven because, you know, there's just no way to know that in this framework. And this was in the 70s and 80s, so we were really heavily in, in the end times sort of prophecies as well. So there was a lot of pretty much waiting for the rapture to happen every day. And, and all of that together, I think, you know, just having people sort of under your thumb in that way of them just being afraid all the time and you being the one that has the answers. I think it, it gets adults as much as it gets kids. But when you when you add in the, the punishment, the physical punishment aspect of it, I think it just takes it to another level. Right. So it's something that happened to you as well. Oh, yeah. It happened to everyone. I mean, there was really no getting out of it. And who who were the people who did it, who did the punishing? Um, it was pretty much anybody, you know, you were expected that you were going to have these same punishments at home as well as within the school environment. Um, but it would be, uh, you know, teachers, uh, school administrators. Okay. And so then when you were punished in that kind of situation, when you were punished, did you feel like, you know you had done something wrong or did it at times make you wonder why you were being treated this way? They would usually have times when people would just kind of be living in fear that something that they did might be the thing that would kind of push them over the edge into punishment. They, they would usually have some sort of a system where you could get your name on, on the chalkboard and then if you got some checks by your name, then that would be, you know, your, that's how you would know that you were going to be punished. So sometimes you you wouldn't exactly know what you had done and your name would get written on the chalkboard. Right. I was going to ask because for some people, what is very hard in systems like this is that sometimes it's, it's clear what the system is 
And other times it's not, and it's hard to master it. And then it's hard to avoid punishment because you don't know what's going to cause it. And that can actually be something that um, releases this kind of constant adrenaline, this hypervigilance and worry. Yes. That's what you experienced? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we were, I was in a constant state of just being afraid all the time. And it was, you know, being afraid of the the end of the world, you know, like the, the physical punishment wasn't even the worst part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. And so what did you envision with the end of the world? What were the visions actually that you were given? Oh, gosh, we had movies about it. Oh, wow. So I didn't have to actually envision it because they would show us these films about what was going to happen. So. Okay. And what was going to happen? Oh, it was just going to be utter chaos. Sometime, nobody knows when, um, the Antichrist would come and do his work. And then when God was ready, he was going to come back and save all of the people who believed in him and take them away and everyone else is going to be left behind and the world is just going to fall into utter chaos and you know there will be murders and wars and famine and you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse kind of stuff um and then after all of that you would still go to hell Uh, okay and this isn't i mean the really really hard thing for me to believe now, Rachel, is that so many people still believe this. There are so many people in the world today that still believe all of this stuff. And it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. And I think uh, so disturbing for people and draining because it's on their mind all the time. And I think also that there is this kind of false correlation where people will interpret things happening or riots or whatever else as a sign. And uh, and so were there things that you were supposed to interpret as signs? Oh, pretty much everything. You know, they would they would talk about the, the daily news cycle, which in the 70s wasn't great anyway. And, you know, it would just be, okay, well, this, you know, this thing that's happening right now in Beirut is, uh, you know, a sign that, that God is coming back or, the Iran hostage crisis, that was a big one. Um, and it was just always sort of something pretty much every time you got together, we'd be talking about the signs for the end times and how, you know, how it wasn't going to be long now. So then if you're thinking that way, that it's not going to be long now, then how did you fall asleep at night? How did you ever relax or did you not? No, I really didn't. I think I I pretty much have been an insomniac my whole life. I remember being a really small child and being awake in the middle of the night. When you are in fight or flight mode all the time like that, it's just hard to function. It's very hard to function. And so when you were up in the middle of the night, was there anyone for you to talk to? Or did you feel like you needed to just sort of suffer through this on your own? No, I, a big part of, of this whole ethos is that you really aren't supposed to ask for help for anything. You're really not supposed to show weakness in any way. I think that it became clear to me, even as a very young kid, that I was kind of on my own because I shouldn't tell people that I'm afraid of that because maybe that would mean I was going to help. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's certainly backing you into a corner, isn't it? Because then you're worried 
about going to hell and then you're because you're worried then you're going to be having worried feelings and then you can't talk about those worried feelings because you might go to hell so it kind of comes back around and that seems to be kind of the answer for everything or the potential punishment for everything right right and the answer to it and the way that you get out of it is that you believe what they're telling you and you take it on faith and you then are saved and you shouldn't worry anymore because none of that bad stuff is going to happen to you. Okay. So then I think that brings us a little bit to what you were saying about the the techniques to stop thinking. So tell me about that. How were you told to stop thinking? Um, well, basically it was that if you are recognizing that you're having bad thoughts about something, you know, like you're angry at somebody or you're thinking about doing something bad or you're questioning something that is Satan trying to tempt you and trying to get into your head. And you just need to know that that is Satan and you you're stronger than that because you have God's protection and you'll, you know, just don't think that anymore. Okay. Did that ever work? (laughs) No, no, I don't think so. But, you know, it was all that sort of mysticism around, you know, finding strength in God and God is the most powerful thing and God will guide you and God God will tell you what to do and God has told me what to do. So I'm sharing this with you now. And, you know, just sort of like this all powerful, this is what the Bible says and God is more powerful than anything. And that is all you need to know. Okay. I have so many questions. so okay so one of the questions is if you then are supposed to believe a certain way like you you can't have anger you can't be sad about things usually that's the case that it's there's a demonization of a negative emotion or a negative thought which is really, I think, truly wrong. It's a burden that's placed on people that is, um, it's so unfair because we as human beings have a range of emotions and it shouldn't be that, uh, you know, kind of 50% of them are bad, like when you go towards the negatives. Um, And so that just keeps people feeling like they're doing something wrong and that they need to keep being happy. But it also keeps you from being able to really have things register as wrong uh, and bad and that they shouldn't have happened to you. And do you think that that was one of the reasons within your group why that was important, sort of so that they could kind of keep doing whatever they wanted to do without people having a negative reaction to it? Yes, absolutely. It absolutely was. And it was Within the the group of people that I knew, even within this group, my my peers and classmates and siblings, there was so much abuse, you know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and certainly emotional abuse. But the but the reason that they could get away with it is because they had already conditioned us to just accept it and to keep it a secret and not tell anyone and not feel anything about it. So, yeah, I mean, that it's a huge part of the institution. And so do you feel comfortable talking about the different forms of abuse? We talked a little bit about spiritual abuse, a little bit about the physical abuse. I'm sure there's more there and also about the sexual abuse. So 
which one do you want to start with? So I, I just ha- kind of feel like because of the patriarchal nature of this this society to begin with, within the Christian religion and certainly within fundamentalism, there are people who are predators who who know that, and they find groups who follow this these same ideas and they entrench themselves in them. So I mean, it's just kind of it's what the system was made to do, really. So there were so many sexual predators within our our church group and even within the administration of the school that I went to um, that people were, you know, we would sometimes talk amongst ourselves about it. I I talked about it with my siblings, certainly, but um, I knew other friends as well. And, you know, you weren't supposed to tell anyone else and we weren't supposed to tell each other, but sometimes we did. And it was teachers and church administrators and school administrators and the, and the way that the system was set up there would often be times when you would be called into the office of of a male teacher or administrator with the door closed and you know nobody thought there was anything wrong with that okay and so what were some of the things that would happen unfortunately behind closed doors if you feel comfortable talking about it well, a lot of times that is when the really physically aggressive punishments would happen. And there was sort of a weird sexual overtone to it where you would be made as a, you know, 12, 13 year old to bend over the desk of the person and then they would hit you with the board. And and then it was, you know, it, it, there there were other instances with with me and with my siblings where we were in a situation where we had sort of an open door policy at our home. Mm. And this was sort of part of the church's outreach as well, where you were kind of expected to open your house to anybody who might need a place to stay, whether it be like a visiting uh, musician or a visiting preacher or a teacher that needed a place to stay while they were doing their classroom work or, you know, someone in the military that was passing through. So there were there were always strangers in your in your living space. So, you know, and again, I think that a lot of people just kind of gravitate to those situations who are predators. Right. And so then having this open door policy means that you were vulnerable. There weren't boundaries. There wasn't going to be privacy. And you were somehow supposed to be fine with that. And so then. At what point, and maybe it's after you left, did you learn about boundaries? Kind of, I know I'm jumping in and then I'll come back to your time in the group, but what point did you learn about boundaries? Oh, gosh, I'm still learning about boundaries, honestly. You know, it's a lifelong process. I, I managed to leave when I was 18 and I'm 49 now. And um, yeah, I'm still, I still have to kind of catch myself and, and remind myself that I'm not doing something wrong by setting a boundary. Right. Okay. By setting a boundary or maybe by saying no or that kind of boundary as well. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, for sure. Okay. All right. And so then when you say you were talking to your siblings, were there times that you would confer with your siblings and kind of wonder with each other if what was happening was okay? 
Um, not really. I was the oldest. Um, and my, my two younger siblings are five and six years younger than me. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was kind of in the protector situation there. Like they would tell me things that had happened and then I would kind of step in and make sure that they were safer. Okay. And you're, parents. So I'm curious about them. What prompted them to want to get involved? And how did they respond to their children being raised this way? I think they got involved because they got married young. They were, I think, only maybe 20 and 22 when they got married. And they were away from their families because my dad was in the military. Mm -hmm. And they, I think, just felt vulnerable. And so they found this group uh, that that was sort of a um, military outreach program through through a local church. And my dad, you know, it was sort of it, it's sort of like the classic cult thing where they, you know, they, they say, hey, you can be in our group, you'll have friends and, you know, we'll make you dinner. And that's how they kind of suck you in. And then, you know, 20 years later, you're still in it. Okay. When you left, at age 18, I'm wondering about that turning point. But before that, were there some other experiences that you wanted to be able to talk about from your time in the group that really kind of, that, that would help paint a picture of your experience? I think just from an overall kind of manipulation and coercive control aspect, mm-hmm. I just think it's really important to understand the ways that they would manipulate people's emotions by, you know, telling you, here's an example. Um, If somebody got sick, usually it was because they weren't following God's path for them. And if someone got better, it was because, you know, they had gotten right with God. So, you know, it's a lot of victim blaming and kind of really heavy handed, you have to do this or you will suffer in some way, even though their whole ethos was based on what they called free will, which was you're free to leave if you want, but something bad is going to happen to you. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, there's that part of it. And then you know, just the whole system being sort of isolated within itself, which I think, I don't know how different it is now in the information age, but in the 70s and 80s, when there was no internet, and we had our own books and and our own textbooks for school, and, you know, our own music, and there was no sort of outside influence. So there was really no, you know, it was very hard to be a critical thinker in that environment. Yeah. You know, I started doing this work in the late 80s, and there was nothing. There was no internet. People could not find information. They couldn't really find anything critical. There were a lot of books that had been published by cult leaders, but not about cults. And so you couldn't find any kind of dissenting views or reach out to other former members to really be able to find them. There sometimes was an underground network. But again, very hard to find. Even now with the internet and even now with the incredible amount of information that people have access to, still within a lot of cultic groups, they're not allowed to access it because it's punishable because they know that then they'll get the information that the group doesn't want them to have. 
So they do a lot of making people afraid about really engaging their critical thinking and finding out facts. And so when you said that it had its own textbooks, who wrote the textbooks? Uh, there are a couple of uh, Christian university presses out there. Even today, I think there are. I mean, this group was pretty, they were ultra conservative. Like they, they thought that Falwell, the original Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, who w- was picking around back then, were too liberal. Oh. So. <laughs> so. I mean, they had their uses. They, they all worked together when it came to political things. But, but you know, within our group, those guys were too liberal. So, so we would get our textbooks from some very sort of conservative university presses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even sometimes there would be information in there that they didn't like. So we would have to rip the page out. Okay. And so what do you remember from those textbooks that stands out now? I remember this. I was in sixth grade. And there was a chapter about um, how old the world is. And literally, they said that carbon dating isn't real in the, in the textbook. I mean, there was, I remember clearly because there was like a picture of a guy doing a, t- a test on a piece of pole. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, like that was what year? I, if I was in sixth grade, that would have been 1980, 81. Mm-hmm. And the textbook said that carbon dating is not real. Uh huh. <laughs> right, because it went against the creation story. Uh, yes. Right. Yeah. So then, going back to manipulating people's emotions, I mean, certainly if you can manipulate the information that people are able to access, you manipulate a lot about their brains and you manipulate a lot about how they feel about themselves and how they feel about the world. When uh, when you were talking about how if people got sick, they weren't following God's plan. What about what else? Sort of what else would happen to people that then they would get blamed for? I think that pretty much anything, you know, they could they could twist pretty much anything bad that happened to you into being something that was your fault because you're not right with God is what they would say. And the crazy thing is you would have people who had a horrible thing happen to them, you know, they lost their spouse or they were in a terrible accident or they had cancer and they would be so afraid that they weren't right with God. And that is why they were sick or had the terrible thing happen that they would stand up in front of the entire group and tell them all the bad stuff that they had done and all the bad thoughts that they had had and how sorry they were and how, you know, they just want to be right with God. Mm. Wow. That's very sad to think about. Yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah. It's horrifying to see it happen. And to think that at those times, if someone has a cancer diagnosis, that really they should be receiving good care, but also compassion and not need to get up in front of people and do something that makes them, well, it reveals that they feel shame, actually, which is adding insult to injury. Wow. Okay. And so when people would get up and give those speeches, were there people who were uncomfortable with that? I mean, because I I think that there are plenty of people who will have a kind of a reaction, but they hide it because they know they're not supposed to have a reaction that's different than the one they're supposed to have. But what do you think? 
Did it ever make you uncomfortable? It made me very uncomfortable from a young age. But honestly, I think that everyone knew what their response was supposed to be to those scenarios. And so they would follow the script, basically, you know, I mean, adults did. And I I don't, I never, this isn't something I ever talked about with anybody else in the group. But, you know, the adults kind of had this script that they followed where they would listen. And then at the end, you know, you would go and hug the person and tell them, you know, how sorry you were and how proud you are of them for, you know, doing the right thing or whatever. So I think, you know, even within the group, they were already so sort of conditioned to think and and not think in certain ways that I don't know that it really got through to them how messed up it was. All right. So what else? What other stories come to mind when you think about your experiences? The other thing that I really want to say is that this group of people that were not really very political, honestly, like they, we never really talked about anything other than these very specific issues. They would go out and protest Roe versus Wade. They would go out with the the signs of aborted babies and hold them up at abortion clinics. They went out and preached on the streets against homosexuality. This is the 70s and 80s still. They petitioned and campaigned and did everything in their power to make sure that stores couldn't be open on Sundays, you know, in, in the state in Virginia where we lived, which that law never even got changed until in the late 80s, I think. I mean, they were, they had a powerful contingent there because of Falwell and Robertson. Right, and, yeah. and they fundraised for these political groups and organizations. We had people showing up at our church uh, probably at least once a month. And they would pass a plate around at the end, fundraising for these people. And it was, you know, like the guy that got elected governor in Virginia in, I think, 78. Mm I think his name was Stephen Dalton. He came and spoke at our church. And then he got elected as governor. Um, Bob Dole came and spoke at our church. Uh, Ian Paisley, who was a... uh, member of parliament in Northern Ireland. He was Protestant. During the Troubles, mm-hmm. he came. And there were literally secret service agents outside because they were afraid of bombing or, or assassination attempts. Wow. So, so they've been, yeah. they have this agenda, you know, on top of all of the other insane things they do and, and the way that they just expect you to kind of follow what they're telling you and believe the lies that they're telling you. In addition to that, they have this agenda that basically puts forth their religious freedom over anyone else's, any other religion, their ability to make decisions about civil rights. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this has been going on for decades. Incredible. I think also it, it, it gives this validity to the church and when you see big name people coming to visit and you feel like then it has this weight in the community and this influence and so for some people that's going to make them feel very proud of being involved in something like this and and I think sometimes what that does is it makes people tolerate 
a lot of things that they probably shouldn't tolerate because they feel like, oh, I'm really part of this thing that a lot of people are looking up to. So I have kind of, mm, uh, I don't have any reason or justification to be upset or to be complaining because I should feel lucky. Did that happen? Yeah, I, no one was, that, this is the thing though. No one, I don't think no one would ever complain about it because it's already built into the system that you don't question things. So if the person in charge tells you this is who you should support and this is who you should believe, then you just do it. No one questioned, no one did any research on their own to figure out whether this was a good idea or not. And especially not when it came to the civil rights issues, you know, that was just, you know, that's part of it. Okay. Wow. It's interesting with civil rights issues. I mean, that's certainly going to impact people uh, in certain ways once they leave it, because they're going to find that they really had to go along with something that is contrary to their conscience. And that can be quite an internal conflict, you know, once you work that out. A lot of people have enjoy the freedom once they leave a cultic group that they can then behave in a way that's in line with what they think is right uh, when they couldn't before. Because what was right before was just following what you were told to believe was right, which is different than what you think is right. And so then what caused you to leave? And I'm curious about that whole scene. Uh, I sort of had started a campaign when I was younger. I, I kind of really early on, I must have been maybe fifth grade. I, we were sitting there watching one of those movies that I told you about, about the rapture and the end times. And it just struck me how completely wrong it is to try and scare people into doing what you want them to do. And at that point, I started kind of moving into not really believing it anymore or, or wanting it to be true and wanting something else for myself. But obviously, you know, I was kind of stuck in it and, until later. So uh, after the, the really hardcore abuse started happening when I was um, 12 and 13, I just kind of got to the point where I physically shut down and there would be times when I just would not be able to get out of bed and go to church or, you know, go to school. So I think that at that point, my mother really, and I think she also knew some of the things that were happening um, because she worked at the school. Oh, okay. So I just kept asking, can we please, can I please go to public school? Can I please be away from this? Cause I'm not going to go to church anymore and you can't make me. And I need to be out of this school. Mm. And so uh, in 10th grade, I started public school and that was kind of the beginning of the end for me. But my mom got sick at the same time. So she had cancer for a few years and she died right before I graduated from high school. Mm. And that was it. After that, I, I was out of the group for good in a really tragic way. Really tragic way. Okay. I, to, I'm sorry to hear that, that you went through that. Going back to when you were 12 and 13 and the serious abuse started, when you said that you just couldn't get out of bed, was it because you, you were injured or because you were just so beaten down by what was happening and frightened? And Yeah, I, I never was physically injured to the point that, that of, of that. Okay, okay. But it was just, I think that I couldn't, get the strength up to deal with it some days, you know? You know, there are a lot of people who will leave uh, an experience like this thinking that 
they have an anxiety disorder or thinking that they suffer from depression. And some of them do, but a lot of people realize it was situational, that they got their energy back once they left. And it seems also just by you going to public schools, you were able to start, it kind of seems like mm, kind of coming back to life to a certain degree. And what was it like to be with people who were your age, but it had a very different life than yours? It was just shocking, honestly. Like I had no idea because I didn't really, I had no friends that were outside of our church or, or school at all, ever. And, and I, I just remember feeling like an alien at first yeah. because everything was so different. The way people dressed was different. The way they talked was different. The way they acted, you know, they were so much more free than I was. And it was just, it was really shocking and, and hard to adjust to, but also exciting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Had you been told about what people were going to be like outside the group? And then it turned out they weren't that way. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we were always kind of told that we were supposed to stay away from non-believers because, you know, they were doing bad things and sinning and they were going to, you know, they were going to be in in trouble mm-hmm. and on drugs and all sorts of things. So, you know, it was when I was younger, they it used to scare me to think about being with people that that weren't just in the same group that I was in, mm-hmm. but then by the time I w- was, you know, 15 and ready to move on to the next thing and ready to kind of see what the world was like. It was still really surprising and and hard to adjust to, but I was happy about it. I'm glad. I'm really glad you had that experience. And I'm glad that your mom said it was okay for you to go to public school. That doesn't always happen. No, I, I really don't know. I think, honestly, I do think it was because she somehow knew, suspected or knew some of the things that had been happening and had a moment of clarity. Okay, good, good. And then I'm sorry, you lost her. And so then what happened? Did your siblings leave too? Was any of your family still involved? Uh, None of my family is still involved that I know of. I'm estranged from my father. I've been estranged from him pretty much for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, So he could very well still be in it. My, My two younger siblings are both uh, not in, involved with church at all. Okay. All right. So I'm just wondering about kind of undoing this process, undoing the process of kind of the thought stopping techniques and feeling comfortable with negative emotions, et cetera, et cetera. How did you begin that process and what's been helping you with that? Honestly, it's a lifelong process for me. I'm really actually just now kind of coming to understand how all of this relates back to religion specifically. I mean, I I already have kind of gone through a lot of therapy about, you know, just kind of dealing with the issues. But having this framework around religious trauma has changed a lot for me. And I, I really hope that if there are other people out there who have grown up like this or experienced these things, that that is something that they will consider. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Okay. So tell me what else? Well, I know we were going to, you know, also maybe cover a little bit about what you're noticing in government, but I don't want to leave your story if there was more that you wanted to share. You know, I'm, as I said, I've been out for 30 years and I'm still, it's still sort of, I'm still processing. And 
I feel really good about things now. You know, it's, it's, you can, there's life after for anyone, no matter what your situation is. You know, I just, these times that we're in now have been really triggering for me to see what's happening in government and to sort of see the rise of modern Christianity and the path that that's taking. There's a lot of people talking about the cult of Trump in the sense of Trump himself being a uh, cult leader, which I, I see. I see that there's a lot uh, of similarity in the way that, that they are trying to control people and, and you know, even within the Trump, Trump organization. But I think that what I have realized about this is because there are so many people in Christianity and fundamentalism and evangelicalism that grew up in the same way that I did with those same methods of being controlled and being taught how to, you know, think and feel and behave and act, they're already in the system, so to speak, you know? So if there is somebody that is trying to use cult tactics to control, they already have this huge population of people at their disposal. Wow, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Right, so they don't have to work very hard to control them if they're already in that kind of mindset. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I've been noodling over for the last couple of years and especially just in the last six months or so since COVID. I mean, it has been very uh, frightening for a lot of people, people who are former cult members and and people who are not actually to just see the willingness to go along without knowing the facts, without having this sort of critical eye without making a distinction between what you believe in and what you don't and what you think is true and what you think isn't. It's just that someone is your leader and you will do as he says. And that that's frightening for, for former cult members. It's frightening for people who were raised with fascism, the frightening people who went through World War II. It's frightening for a lot of people. And it shows something about human nature, which you've probably also been noodling over. I love that expression. And so what do you think it means about people when they just put their blinders on? I think it points to the fact that there is definitely something afoot within the system that we find ourselves in. You know, they're definitely trying to use those methods of control. But I think also that people generally We'll take the easy way out when it comes to information, you know, if something seems credible. And and so if you start putting in things that are lies, but they still seem credible and you keep doing that and you keep doing it, you know, eventually you're going to have people that will believe a blatant lie because why wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I don't know. It's really, it's it's hard for me because... I spend so much of my time fact-checking everything because I, you know, it's just what I do now. I can't help it. Right. And I don't, it's hard to understand why more people don't do that. Even people that weren't raised in Christianity, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't think it's all Christians. You know, I, I think there are just certain sects of Christianity where this is, it's just the way that it is. And it's what people grew up with. Right. But it's, it's hard for me to understand people that 
that haven't been raised that way and why why we're sort of at this point where there's a crisis of truth in this country. A crisis of truth. I like that expression. What I think is true, though, you know, is similar to your experience where there was this looming threat. And I think you can get people to follow a lot of things without question if there is a looming threat, if there is this thing that you can um, portray for them that is uh, sort of danger lurking around the corner. And then people are going to want to know how to prevent that from happening. So similar to how, you know, there have been genocides in the past, usually because those people who were killed were able to be portrayed as a threat uh, and that they were whatever coming after you or taking over this or whatever, controlling that. And that then people were kind of, um, were okay with just doing whatever they could for this supposed feeling of survival. Um, and sometimes you just do that without question. Like you're, you're in a burning building and someone says, go that way, you go that way. You know, you don't say, uh, well, let me check first and see, you know. And so uh, I think that there is something about that with human beings um, where we will do what we can to protect ourselves. But I guess like with your fact checking, what you need to fact check is if there actually is danger or if that was manufactured so that we will behave a certain way without question. Right. Okay. Okay. So it was wonderful to talk to you and great to get to know you. And uh, I have a feeling just as you're, you know, thinking about things and seeing how your experiences affected you and affected your thinking and how you're noticing it in the world, there'll probably be other ideas that pop into your head. So feel free to reach out and we can talk again. Thank you so much, Rachel. And thank you for the work that you're doing. It's amazing. Oh, well, thank you very much. And I'm, I'm so glad that you got in contact and that you wanted to share your, your information and your story with people. It's really valuable. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Tammy for getting in touch with me to share her experiences with the public. Tammy's experiences shine a light on many subjects that I care about and I know you care about. How controlling groups manipulate people's emotions, how they teach you to stop thinking, how they give you information that's filtered through them only. A very skewed vision of well, really, everything. Even a skewed vision about how you're supposed to view yourself. She also endured abuse of nearly every kind, and it highlights something not a lot of people know enough about. The ideas of religious trauma and spiritual abuse. They are real things. It is now included in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual used by professionals to diagnose psychiatric and emotional, developmental, and learning issues. And that inclusion has helped to lend further credence to this as a real issue. 
I remember my first couple of clients who were raised in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And a lot of them talked to me about having nightmares and panic attacks. And I was wondering what it was about their upbringing, about the teachings that caused them to have this. And I realized they had been exposed at a very young age to the ideas of the end times and Armageddon and the earth cracking into pieces and the fires of hell coming up and destroying anyone who was not saved. And these were visions in books like kind of cartoonish visions, but still that's not the bedtime story you want to be read when you're seven years old. And so there are so many people who suffer with this religious trauma and spiritual abuse from many different kinds of organizations. Some people even who were raised in households where their parents or grandparents who really ran the household had these kinds of teachings that kept them in fear all the time of Satan, all the time of God's punishment. And it's extremely disturbing because here you have God in the mix. So how can you argue with it? How can you say that the person who's running it could be wrong about this? Why would you take that risk? And it creates so much isolation. You can't really be honest with the people closest to you about any of your doubts. Even having doubts is sinful. Within a lot of these groups, there's also a suppression of normal developmental stages of childhood, including social, moral, emotional, sometimes even physical stages. They're affected and arrested and delayed. And it's doubly hard for women, as most of these groups are patriarchal and misogynistic. It's very hard for children, again, because there very often is not an understanding about developmental stages and what should be punishable and not at different stages, because everything seems to be worthy of punishment, even things that are absolutely developmentally appropriate for kids at certain ages, like talking or moving their bodies, not being able to sit through an eight-hour-long sermon. And it's also extremely hard for people within these communities who are LGBTQ, anyone who feels like they are not considered part of the population that's supposed to be able to go to heaven. And so what's also true is that if you have a health issue, if you have a psychological issue, you're treated even more cruelly. That somehow it's something you brought on yourself. You're blamed for it. It was God's punishment. And so how do you know if the group that you're in is causing you these kinds of effects? Sometimes you know because you can tell, you can feel it. But what are some abusive kinds of dynamics? So you want to be able to see if the group that you're in defines your worth and your value. And if you're worthy of love or 
if you're worthy of forgiveness based on things that you can or can't change, like sexuality, ethnicity, gender, or gender identity? Do they also discourage free thinking, critical thinking, anything that also would be a way for you to question any of the teachings? Is that something that's simply, simply not allowed? And even with all the suffering that you're doing within the group, do they tell you that this is the only true way and this is the only way? So you feel that this is really your only choice. The other thing to remember too is that very often in these groups, people are shamed and publicly shamed if they disagree in any way. And also, if they don't show up, if they don't go to everything, if they don't go to every service, every Bible study, if they don't volunteer, if they don't give more, if they don't tithe enough, if they don't behave perfectly, if they don't represent the group perfectly. And also, there is a lot of permission given for abuse. And scripture is often used as a way to somehow validate the abuse. The religious texts are used somehow to make it okay that this is the way you're supposed to be treated, or this is why it's permissible for the leader to do the following things, because after all, someone in the Bible was able to do something kind of like it. And so if you feel like because of your experiences, as you're moving away, you feel completely isolated because you have this disconnection from your whole family. You also don't feel deserving. You've been taught maybe that joy is really not a value. Happiness is not a value. Or people who leave don't deserve happiness. So you don't have any kind of interest in things that you enjoy. In fact, you're not quite sure you're supposed to enjoy anything. And that you feel lost and directionless. And that while at the same time that you're feeling kind of happy, I suppose, to be free of the group, you've also been taught to look down on the world that now you're a part of. So you're very confused about if the life you're living is the one you should be living because you feel relief and happiness and also that somehow you've fallen from grace and now you're with the people you used to look down on. And so I think if you are finding that you are really having trouble with also feeling that you are kind of a fish out of water, you don't know how to be in society, it adds to this feeling of being isolated. And then you don't necessarily connect with people. A lot of people go back into religious communities or the same religious community because they just don't know how to be in the world. And so there's a therapist whose name is Sherry Heller who specializes in treating complex trauma and also religious and spiritual trauma. 
And I want to be able to tell you a little bit about what she says. She says that religious or spiritual trauma is a form of psychological abuse and brainwashing that inculcates the shameful message that we are sinful and must live in a constant state of penance and atonement to escape the ravages of hell and God's punishment. This kind of fall redemption theology uses fear to ensure dominance and control. And essentially it sets up Stockholm syndrome with the spiritual religious leader and with one's idea of God. And so what do you do? What do you do if you're affected by this? Of course, you want to be able to get some help. You want to be able to get some support. You want to be able to talk to people who understand. You also don't want to go to an organization that tells you, well, the problem is you were just with the wrong church or the wrong whatever it is. You need to go to the right church, and I have an idea about where you need to go. Sometimes you need some time away, and sometimes you need to not feel like you're kind of going from out of the frying pan into the fire. And so you want to talk to someone who understands it in terms of theology, but really mostly psychology. I don't have any need for anyone to be atheist, agnostic, a believer, it's all okay. I think they're all personal decisions. And what I think is important, though, is that you get to create your own connection to whatever it is or whomever it is, to a creator, to an idea, just a sense of awe, or whatever provides it for you. But being able to be your true self as you leave something like this means being able to make your own decisions, means being able to forge your own path, but means being able to have your own conversations. And what I mean by that is this. A lot of people say to me who did feel that they had a connection with God and whatever that meant to them that they no longer speak with God and God doesn't speak with them because it used to be that they were only able to access that connection through the leader of their group. And now that they're gone from the group or they don't have a connection to the leader, they no longer have a connection with this higher power. And what I have to keep thinking, I think, is if a higher power is such an omniscient force or someone who is just or something that is just and good, I wouldn't let the cult leader, your former cult leader, be the middleman. Because then you're not having a connection to a higher power. You're basically playing telephone. And by the time a message gets to you, it's been filtered through the leader. So it's no longer going to be whatever you feel God would have said to you. And I'm imagining God is probably waiting for your leader, your former leader, to kind of scoot out of the way so he or she can talk to you directly. 
someone who he or she has been probably waiting to have a private conversation with for many, many years. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.